need supports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRigger.com and joining me, as always, the prince of the Friday news dump, Danny Greenwald. That's when you got to do it. No one's paying attention. You always get away with it. Guess what, guys? You don't have to do Friday news dumps anymore because nobody's doing anything. You didn't catch me while I was at a hot buffet at Morongo about to sit down for six hours of Hold'em poker. You know what I mean? Like, I'm in the same place I always am. I'm on my couch. I'm looking at my phone. No more Friday news dumps. Okay, how about that? Do you think that they felt like whether... And what we're talking about here, obviously, it could be anything. It could be uh, firing all the executives at HBO Max or um, shutting down the U.S. post office. Yeah, I was going to say the end of mail. Whatever you guys want to talk about. Whatever you do, you can't do it at dinner time on Friday, then spend the next six hours waxing your mustache and drinking whiskey out of a heavy beveled glass. Like, we're watching. We're aware. (laughs) It's cool. Nobody's doing anything. (laughs) Andy, it's so good to talk to you on this Monday morning. We wanted to hit up a little bit of stuff about this WarnerMedia HBO Max uh, shakeup that involved Bob Greenblatt and Kevin Riley exiting through the gift shop and uh, Casey Bloys and Ann Sarnoff sort of being elevated under uh, Jason Kalara, who's, you know, former Hulu... I guess, CEO, right? Executive, at least. That's right. And he is now sort of big dog, big dog pit bull over at Warner Media. Um, and they're just sort of streamlining things, I think is the best way to put it. But I have a, I have a few things I want to talk to you about in regards to that. And we're going to actually talk about some, some recent pieces of HBO Max content that we wanted to chat mm-hmm. about. American mm-hmm. Pickle, which I watched very late last night and may have fallen asleep during. And Perry Mason <laughs> season finale, which I will opine about. But Andy, how are you first before we get going? I'm great. I just feel like, you know, I feel like my job on this podcast is to really, you know, just pull back the curtain, let people know what's really going on in Hollywood and in this podcast. And what's going on today is I see you, but you can't see me. And I I feel like that's interesting. (laughs) It's a kind of an interesting Friday news dump of our own here because I'm I'm reading all the cues. I'm watching your body language. I'm watching you take a sip of water right now as I speak. But you can't see me. You don't know what I'm doing. And so I wonder what that will do to our audio dynamic. I've done podcasts with you in every single possible way. I've done them with <laughs> you true. while you're like waiting out a dust storm in Albuquerque. I've done them That's with true. you in various locales across the states on payphones. You know, like I'm, th- this is a an open exchange of ideas and it doesn't really it's not it's the message, not the medium. I also should note that today a yep. little bit of more house cleaning uh, on the second half of the show. I'm going to be joined by Michael Peters and Justin Charity who have their I guess reborn like a phoenix rising from the ashes. Yes. Uh podcast sound only which is coming this week and is really really dope. I've been listening to the sort of not pilots but the sort of rehearsal runs that they've been doing and I'm really excited for that pod. I wanted people who are listening to watch to get to know Mike and J- Justin a little bit better and hear a little bit about that podcast and also just we're going to talk some shit to each other. And then at the end of this show for about I guess probably almost another extra 40 minutes because you know you want it. It's that summer of Dove. It's the first Lonesome Pod. It's the first episode of the CBS miniseries in the first 280 pages, at least according to my edition, of Larry McMurtry's Lonesome Dove. This is a long-promised project that Andy and I have been working on where we just wanted to share our passion for this, this story, this uh, saga that has pretty much taken over our lives. I, you know, I hadn't been checking in with Kaya before she went on vacation. And thank you, nephew Kyle, for, for manning the boards today for us. Um, I assume she spent the latter half of last week just sourcing horse clip-clop noises and whinnying and neighs <laughs> just to really, like, punch up 
The sound of two yeah. dudes in their forties waxing poetic about a thirty-year-old yeah, cowboy Bill novel. I had just buy the Ennio Morricone sound library, <laughs> um, so that we could just go dun 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 dun. Could you just dun, have him buy some dun, horses? Dun, dun, dun. I feel like that's more economically feasible than getting <laughs> well, into Morricone. Well, if you've been keeping up with Ozark, you would know that buying horses is a pretty pretty dangerous thing to do. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, we we are we joke. We are really excited and proud of this. We're going to be talking through the book. Uh, and the miniseries over the next four episodes. And then never fear if you are not caught up. I think the plan is we will combine these episodes into a single freestanding uh, remuda, if you will, a word I learned from <laughs> Lonesome Dove. Um, we will hobble our own horses together so you can listen to them all at once. But if you are listening along, if you uh, are reading along, if you're watching along and you have questions about Larry, about the book, about the miniseries, about the project, about our deep, deep love of it, about how long Chris and I could survive crossing rivers with nothing but a bit of bacon in our saddlebags. Um, hit us up with some questions on Twitter, Facebook group, whatever, because um, we want to we bring you along for the ride. Yeah, absolutely. So before we get into this, into this Max stuff, did you have anything you need to get off your chest? Any, any weekend observations? <laughs> no. Uh, I, I loved where you started with the, with the lack of Friday Night News dump, because come on. So yeah, I'm, I'm ready to get into it unless you have you have, you have something frisky. So here's no, here's basically the thing. So Bob Greenblatt and Kevin Riley are out um, while the heads of HBO and Warren movies with Casey Bloys and Ann Sarnoff, respectively, they've been elevated. And I guess you could say that this can be real, you know, read as a course correction of sorts from the original right. management st structure that took over after AT&T bought Time Warner and Form Warner Media. Um, and, it, and it ends any semblance I think of siloing is, is really if you're reading between the lines, like with the stuff that Jason Clark was saying is that he wants to streamline everything and he doesn't want people reporting to multiple different generals. He wants it all to kind of go up to him and that, for there to be sort of an elegance to the way that they're doing things. The way I figured we could do this, if you yeah. will allow me, Andy, is I'm going to okay. give you some takeaways and you tell me yep. if they're true or false. Okay. So this kind of makes you Bob Hollywood. I don't know if you want to say you're Robert Hollywood here. It, it depends. I, I, you know, I think we're all being a little more informal these days. Most of Hollywood's <laughs> happening over Zoom. So <laughs> you call me what you will. First takeaway. Running a streaming service is an entirely different skill set than running a network or a channel. Um, true. True. And I think the, the, the impetus for asking that question comes from the fact that Greenblatt and Riley are uh, made their bones, if you will, old school on, on traditional traditional programming, basically. And yeah. for those who um, haven't been keeping up with the C-suite uh, machinations, um, Bob Greenblatt was a uh, is a well-respected programmer who came to NBC, took it over, you know, basically ten years ago now, which is sort of shocking after the pretty disastrous reign of Ben Silverman, and got a lot of guff. From people like me who wanted NBC to be more like the NBC I remembered from my youth, um, or at least from my early 20s, but is credited largely for saving and turn the network and turning it around through things like the Chicago franchise, through things like uh, America's Got Talent, um, very going, going very broad, uh, which actually was probably the right play in a time when the streamers and more niche programming was, was expanding elsewhere. Um, he came on as part of this AT&T takeover. Right. Kevin Riley uh, was the original head of FX, then became the president of Fox, um, where he did a lot of interesting things. And then for the last few years, has been in charge of the Turner Networks. And then he was elevated 
to basically overseeing a lot of the original programming for HBO Max from his role at Turner. Mm -hmm. So these were kind of the old school heads who were who were building up um, the content library for HBO Max ahead of its launch and also spearheading, at least from a development side, the rush to get it up. And mm -hmm. Chris and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that this whole project happened in basically in a year, which is incredible um, for how much time is usually poured into these enormous uh, brand building um, uh, paradigm shifting decisions within this industry. So that was all going on and it all seemed to be going pretty well. They had a lot of budget, they had a lot of uh, leeway and um, now they don't have a lot of jobs. And it's, I have to say, Chris, we, we, we love covering the industry from our perspective just outside of it. Shouts to our inspiration, Jackie Harvey from The Onion. And <laughs> it, this was a shocker. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. there's been a lot of slow bubbling developments at NBC Universal over the last few weeks. There's been a lot of fallout from the, you know, the latest volleys in the streaming wars, as well as what COVID has done to the industry. But people did not see this coming. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it's pretty surprising. And yeah, I mean, there are a lot of there are a lot of takeaways, but I don't want to jump on your next question. Well, I would just say that there's it's not uncommon. So if you consider HBO Max a startup, it's not uncommon to see some executive departures after a certain phase of that startup is over. But HBO Max is not an electric scooter company or um, like an app. <laughs> they, right. I mean, they are an app, but this is like Bob Greenblatt and Kevin Riley were not short-term fixes that then did what they needed to do and left. I think that the... Kevin Riley signed a new contract in May of 2020 for four years. So right. this was not a cheap decision. Right. This is this is like more like Italian soccer ma management decisions. <laughs> Where like you, you, you sign the guy and you're like, we hope to be with this man forever. And then, and then fire him the next day. Uh, so that was my Italian soccer club owner. It, it, voice. it was good. Uh, you can Venmo me for more. Um, but yes, I just... But, but I think only in Lyra. Chris only my, accepts Lyra. <laughs> my takeaway here was that um, this is the, the, the Hulu 07 squad, you know, like the guy, the people who were sort of in charge of Hulu when it launched before we even really all knew what streaming was. And they have been, you could say, ahead of the game for quite some time. And that they felt like HBO Max needed to be foregrounded in this whole conversation and that there needed right. to be a different brain, di different group of brains uh, attacking the problem. My and and why, why do they need to do that? Well, that's my next takeaway. My next takeaway is clarity counts. Because HBO launched, HBO Max launched with a require, when it, when it launched, it required an instructional video explaining whether or not consumers already had it, got mm -hmm. it for free with their pre-existing subscription or had to pay for a new one. And there were, at the outset, four different HBOs going at once at one point. Also, Chris, let me jump in and say, one of the things adding to the confusion is that there were a surprising number of false negatives when mm -hmm. you got tested to see if you had HBO Max. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. The guys it, at Dodger Stadium were like, we don't know, we just can't say for sure. I was like, I... I I was like, I've been a subscriber for a while. I still have cable. Do I have it? And they were like, look, just, just stay in your car, swab your face, yeah. and we'll let you know. Yeah, Here's so Anna Kendrick. you had HBO Go, HBO Max, uh, uh, HBO... Now? Now, and then regular old, I have cable, I have HBO, and 10 HBO channels for, at that on, on, my, on my cable service. Go has been sunset. And I, I, I imagine that everything is just going to sort of be... You either have HBO Max because you have a cable subscription or you can sign up for HBO Max if you just have internet access. But this is something that I don't think... I, I think the only service that we've seen in the last year or so that we've been talking about this 
that has just launched and been all of a sudden like, yep, this is going to be here for a while. It feels like it's always been here. It feels like it has a perfect reason for being is the plus. Well, part of that is I think Disney, unlike all these other companies, has been a consumer facing company for its entire existence. I mean, point of contact or all these like industry terms that that a company like Warner Media that didn't exist as a unified company just a couple of years ago, they don't have a theme park business. They don't have uh, they don't sell toys directly. You know what I mean? They don't have cruise ships. They're not used to greeting consumers and welcoming them into the experience. Disney has that advantage. And I think that played out even in terms of like UI, user interface, right? Um, so the clarity thing is a doozy. We talked about it a lot. And I think, I'd like to say, I think we were kind of right. Um, we're going to talk about an American Pickle, the Seth Rogen movie in a bit. But when that movie started, it said it was a Point Grey production, which is Seth Rogen's production company. And it also said it was a Warner Max production. Mm. I was like, Warner Max? What's that? Another version of this, we're just going to keep iterating different combinations of words and suffixes and prefixes. But isn't Warner Max what this thing should have been called? Their argument was HBO is something people know, and it's a popular brand, and it means television, and it means prestige television, and it means quality, so we should use it. That definitely means more than Warner does in the year 2020. But the flip side of that that we ran up against here is people don't know what they have. And then we ran into this other thing, which is you got a little Big Bang Theory in my HBO, mm -hmm. right? Where HBO means a certain level of quality uh, and people expect a certain level of quality from it. And which isn't to say Big Bang Theory isn't quality. It's just not what anyone would ever expect to find on their HBO. So combining it into one big soup is a little bit confusing. Then yes. in terms of programming clarity, Kevin Riley and Bob Greenblatt was, were running their own shop. They had a lot of money to play with. They were told to boost, you know, to, to, to really ramp up production. But the shows that they were greenlighting and making aren't necessarily HBO shows. Because meanwhile, in his office, Casey Bloys is ramping up production too and making a lot of HBO shows. And he's making really good shows. And he's on a hell of a winning streak right yeah, now. Yeah, he's on a heater. One that, one that looks to that. continue this month with Lovecraft Country, which is getting rave reviews. So from a programming perspective, and yes, you could say HBO Max got dinged because a lot of the originals that they were hoping to have, including like a Friends reunion, never materialized because of the pandemic. Um, Partly, this is a judgment on the clarity of the branding, but it's also a judgment on the future of development and content. Uh, a, a, a judgment we can't weigh in on because we haven't seen the shows, but clearly behind the scenes, there was some, some concern. I, when we talk to streaming wars, there's always a degree of Monday morning quarterbacking going on that Andy and I don't have to make these decisions and we don't have nearly enough insight into the economics and the politics and all the various reasons why one thing happens and another thing doesn't. It's been really fascinating to watch these services launch. And I think the reason why Andy and I talk about this stuff so much is because we are very interested in why we are seeing the things that we wind up watching and how those things come to be created and how now, now more than ever, I think, a variety of different forces like technology, Silicon Valley, um, conglomerates, like global conglomerates in a way that I don't even think that we were experiencing when it was like... Gulf Western owned Paramount. I mean, this is we're on a different level here almost. And I, I think it's very interesting to think about, well, okay, so then why Love Life? Why why Search Party? Why are these the shows that you are launching with? Um, and then by that same token, why did Apple TV launch with this full suite of originals that were very expensive but seemed to lack a kind of um, real brand or identity or, or perspective in some ways? And so the, these are two two sides of the coin. Like one is a service that launched with 
few originals, but a huge library and a a library that they were very proud of. While another service might launch with, hey, we got all these movie stars in shows. Can you believe it? Also, you already have a lot of this stuff because you are completely intertwined with the Apple product experience more more than likely on your daily life. So it's really interesting to talk about these things. I I think that one thing that hasn't been determined, although I'm I'm sure there are people who are who are consultants who are paid an enormous amount to have a strong opinion about this. We are not among them. But I don't think people have quite figured out how to do this yet, how to launch successfully. Because I think you need... Libraries don't move subscriptions. I think that seems to be pretty clear, at least if you want to extrapolate anything from the HBO Max launch. I'm looking at a headline from Variety from um, just the other month, from the end of July, saying HBO Max and HBO have 36.3 million subscribers. So that's Mm -hmm. combining HBO Max and HBO, which already is a dodge, saying that's up 5% from the end of 2019. So it's up 5%. However, HBO proper lost 2.1 million subscriptions. So that's just a lot of numbers that aren't quite clear. So the subscription wasn't, the subs number, which is what's driving it, isn't what they want it to be. So you need new content to do that. However, when you're launching a service, the one piece of information we can extrapolate from the last few years of launches is the the shows you choose or your executives or your development people choose to launch with aren't going to define you. Your audience in the consumers will define you through the shows that mm-hmm. they choose to champion and fall in love with. Yes. So, you know, uh, Jason Clark has taken over Warner Max and has, has come over there with um, a lot to be proud of with Hulu, which is now quite entrenched and has a very successful uh, originals business. But Hulu was flailing just like all these companies were at the beginning until The Handmaid's Tale suddenly appeared. And then they fluked it into an Emmy Award win, and then they were suddenly in business. And that was their show. And sure. it, it, this, this is something that goes back to AMC being like, yeah, okay, I guess we'll make the show about an advertising executive and also a, a guy cooking meth. And then all of a sudden, AMC was AMC. So right. you kind of have to launch with a bunch of stuff, and then you have to listen to your, your consumers. But you can't, you can't play for both outcomes, right? Um, it's a little bit confusing, and it requires a long leash to get there. But we are, especially due to a global you know, economic catastrophe and not to mention a health catastrophe, people don't really have long leashes right now. One more takeaway and then we can get into Pickle and Perry, which is just maybe what we should change the name of this podcast to. Um, so clarity counts. We said that, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe Friends doesn't. Right. Max launched with legacy titles like Friends and Big Bang Theory in its library, but perhaps... Perhaps those shows were more attractive to, I don't know, like the easy to use world of Netflix and Hulu. Yeah. Or the I'm already here, you know, I'm I'm hanging out. Oh, Friends is on. I'm gonna let Friends play for the next six hours. You know, maybe that's not the, exactly the attraction to signing up for a new service or switching over your watching habits to a new service that people thought it was. And if I may go one step further, maybe people have like watched friends now like like maybe the, maybe well, people have watched friends 10 12 times through and they're like i'm all done i had years and years of friends on a loop and now it's not on netflix and i'm okay well i think this dovetails with what i was trying to say before but i think you've said it even better here which is that like library titles legacy titles that's your nice that's your base but it's not your guitar solo you know what i mean like it's great to have it and it will boost, it'll support you and it'll keep people subscribed. But I don't know if it's moving the needle to get people to sign up. You need something bigger, brighter, more electric to do that. And if I could use a personal anecdote, because I don't think... Always, I'm, always. I don't this think is a place I'm for the, personal storytelling. 
it's just another episode of Perry and the Pickle. I don't think I am the target for any of this, although I cling to the fact that I am still barely in this 18 to 49-year-old demographic that still matters. Um, Chris, you know, in a previous pre-child life, like I was a pretty big sports fan, watched a lot of sports, really loved our Philadelphia sports teams, yeah. lived or died with them. Um, even during this difficult pandemic time, I was like, though it seems like a catastrophic decision, I, I would watch baseball because I really like having baseball games on. I have not watched any baseball games this year, despite baseball being something that I have long enjoyed in my life, because I'll be honest with you, I have no idea how to find it. I don't know how to turn it on. I don't know what channel it's on. Baseball? Yeah. And the thought of looking for it is so exhausting that I'm not going to do it. I'm just not going to do it. I'm also not paying for the MLB. Andy, I got to tell you something. This is how you find out that you are actually not in the 18 to 49 demo. Yeah, no, I'm in the 75-year-old demo. Now, let me tell you something. I, is, there, is there an actual channel called baseball that I can watch no, the baseball games I, on? I'm being honest. Like, are because, these on the, on the CBS network? Where are these things? I, if they were, I would watch them. But my point the is not only... The reason you can't only, find baseball is that they, all the games keep getting suspended. Well, that's true. All the players are sick. But I, uh, I am dragging myself partially with intention, but also to say baseball in this metaphor, if you'll allow it, is friends or is the office, which is to say, gosh, I love it. I'll always love it. I don't like it any less during the months or years that it's not in my life. But if it's not just there, I might not make the effort to find it. And me not being able to navigate DirecTV despite four years of deeply dissatisfied uh, uh, business relationship with them is one thing. But you know, asking someone who is used to watching Netflix, maybe uh, friends on Netflix while they cook dinner, being told, well, now you have to download this new app that you might or might not already have. and You have to pay $15 a month and it's over here. And now it's purple. That might not that might be a barrier. Right. So I think yeah. there's a lot of different things for them to to address. I think that we should also turn this to one other word that you said, which is the sort of the low key story in here, or at least the more industry facing story, which is the and you use the word silos. For a while, people were like, these media companies can be enormous and be as big as they need to be. And they can be fiefdoms, basically, right? Like every little piece of them can be their own little piece. They can approach their content business the same way Warner approaches the DC universe. Like you get a Joker and you get a Joker and you get a Joker. It's no big deal, man. Yes. My Joker's not touching your Joker. That doesn't really work anymore because the, the part of this consolidation story that's leading all the headlines, including ours, is people whose names we know are out, Kevin Riley and Bob Greenblatt. In some ways, the more telling story and the story that leads to today's story, which is, oh, P.S., there's going to be hundreds of layoffs at the company, is that instead of saying the Turner networks have their own studios to generate content in their own heads, and uh, DC Universe has its own people, and HBO has its own people, and HBO Max has its own people, this reorganization is saying, we're Warner Media. We have a studio. And our studios make shows that can go on a bunch of different places, but it's all one thing. And as much as that runs against the narrative of Casey Bloy's, you know, bringing the HBO sensibility to the larger company, which to some degree he probably will because he has good taste and he has his own sensibility, but he's in charge of Turner now also. Um, It's all one thing. And this is where media is going. And purely from a business perspective, a perspective I rarely take, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, even at the company where I do business, um, NBC Universal, right? There are two studios. There's Universal TV uh, that makes like your Mike Schur shows, your Tina Fey shows, the Chicago Fire shows, 
Um, and then there's UCP, which is where I have a deal that makes shows like uh, Homecoming or, or Mr. Robot or The Umbrella Academy, mm-hmm. um, the two distinct studios. But we're already starting to see that crumble in other companies. For example, again, I'm just using NBC Universal example. They're making a TV show of Child's Play, the, the horror movie. It's already been announced that that show is going to be on USA and Sci-Fi. And maybe it'll be on Peacock too. Wait, you know, USA it, and Sci-Fi, like two channels. At the, the same, same time. way. Okay. Well, and, and, and AMC was doing exactly. that with Killing Eve, with BBC America, yeah. That's where things are going. And I think that that thinking, which is not wrong, is what led them to say, uh, you can get some HBO Max and my HBO, right? Because it's all the same thing. But they, they may have jumped the gun on that. And there were other issues at play. But the streamlining of studios and the streamlining of these media companies into saying it's all one tube now is the, is the story of the, of the present, if not the future. Right. I... Are- I, I feel like we could we could use this moment and we can just we can jump on to um, the, the two things from HBO Max that we watched over the weekend. I will just say this. Uh, months ago, Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg came on the pod. Um, I think it was late last year, if I had to remember correctly. And, you know, I was asking him, is there a world in which uh, one of these services essentially can't make it around the track for the first time? I don't know what... What, what I was really thinking in terms of like how, how long it would last, but is there a, a world in which basically people can't keep stumping up for the five, six streaming right. services on top of whatever other bills they have? And he kind of was like, yeah, and that, 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 would, that world would be a world in which we are in a pretty significant recession, if not worse. And that was pre-COVID and pre-everything that's happening. And I do wonder whether or not we're gonna people are gonna start making if they haven't already, which obviously there's a lot of like economic strife right now and economic turmoil right now. If they're gonna start making some pretty easy decisions to be like, I can just save thirty, forty five, sixty dollars yeah. a month getting rid of this stuff, and maybe drop down to Netflix or have nothing at all, but you know, start to just kind of make these kind of like decisions because these this the streaming wars were a, a product of excess in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're not living in excessive times anymore. No, I think that's right. And I think that for even in a time when they had been able to launch these services with the bells and whistles they, bells and whistles they intended to launch them with, bells and whistles are a lot less appealing when you also need food and shelter. You know what I mean? It, it, it's just a very, very different um, economic landscape that they're entering into. And we could say, um, oh, I wish... You know, I'm sure to some degree, either the men themselves or those around them are saying, oh, if only we had launched HBO Max with the Gossip Girl reboot and the Friends reunion that we had intended to, things would have broken differently. But even if they had finished production to go into this to this uh, economic environment, I I don't know if that moves. I don't know what needles those things move at this moment. Uh, Talk to me about American Pickle a little bit. Oh, so people may know. Uh, Seth Rogen made a movie based on a very, very, very funny, very up my alley, Simon Rich short story called Sellout. Um, and this was one of the first big kind of deals at the beginning of the pandemic, which was this was supposed to be a theatrical release. Um, and HBO Max snapped it up and dropped it this past weekend. And I, I got a couple things to say about it. One is well worth your time. Um, it's very funny. It's I think it's one of Seth Rogen's best performances ever. In fact, he's doing two performances. It's about a uh, Jewish immigrant in 1919 who leaves leaves a very 
a hilariously hard scrabble life in Eastern Europe to work in a pickle <laughs> factory in Brooklyn and then falls into a pickle jar, is brined for a hundred years and meets, wakes up to meet his sort of sad sack tech developer, great grandson played also by Seth Rogen. Um, it is a very light and enjoyable thing to watch. Um, it is as Mark Maron described it to Seth Rogen, maybe the most Jewish movie made since the 1970s. <laughs> and just to say that though, that, that, What's kind of amazing when you watch this is this was going to be a theatrical release. I'm sort of in awe of that. It, to me, isn't really worth it, whatever that means anymore, right? Because it's, a, it's an enjoyable, it's a light entertainment. Um, it doesn't really hang together. Like, I think it, it's the kind of movie that seems to be having so much more fun when it's in Eastern Europe with Sarah Snook uh, than it is later when it's trying to find some morality about developing web apps. Yeah, yeah it, it yeah. doesn't quite work on that level but it's trying and it and it and it gives a good gives it a good effort but it it really suggested to me and this is something i was gonna i know you love to be surprised on the podcast but i feel like we should uh i don't know i was about to talk about it like it's a duel we should demand justice no we should suggest to our buddy sean fantasy maybe a, a some sort of crossover home and home with big picture because i feel like what, what we're starting to see is the emergence of an entirely new genre which i kind of want to call the medium movie this is a medium movie, and it is absolutely best served on a streaming service. It's not a TV show. It doesn't feel smaller or less. It's just like a thing that I that that worked as an hour and a half entertainment and was nice to have on the weekend. And we've been talking about a couple things like that. I think Palm Springs, for example, could have worked in the movies, but it was an excellent medium movie. Mm -hmm. um, and what I kind of want to talk to to Sean about. So I just, I'm just going to throw this out here, but maybe we'll we'll be able to, to flesh this out more fully is I think we should come up with a list of filmmakers whose careers maybe would have been better if they had just been empowered to make media movies. Filmmakers who have been stymied, who we'd like to make it rain with money so they could make media movies. Because there's a place for this. And maybe Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg, this would be a, a better thing for them. They're making a lot of TV projects already. They, you know, they, they, they work on Black Monday. They did Preacher. Boys. Um, the boys, like, they kind of just want to make stuff. And the way streaming is, it's elastic enough to fit all their different interests right now. But there are a whole other range of filmmakers. Like, I would make a case that Judd Apatow is kind of makes media movies and well, would do I better mean, if he could ways, just chase his bliss. In some he, ways and he already did the summer. King of Staten Island, yeah. Exactly. But there are all other filmmakers, like, like someone whom I love, who's not going to, you know, move, move needles at Marquis anymore, but like Whit Stillman, uh, who spent like the last 20 years trying to make a fifth movie. Well, I think he, he, and he also has been trying to like get various Amazon series yes. off the ground. And yeah. I just think that he's just like, no, I have to like, I mean, I, for, I have no idea why those things haven't worked. But I enjoyed right. the one pilot that came out of that though. The Cosmopolitans. But yeah. instead of taking someone who makes movies and trying to squeeze them into a TV box saying, okay, that movie you want to make, could you just make it a 10 episode half hour series? Let him make right. a medium movie and we'll sure. move on. So, so, it's nothing but positivity for me about this. I enjoyed it. I, I thought Seth Rogen was great. I thought Sarah Snook was having the time of her life uh, eating a dried fish head. And it made me excited about the future, not of cinema, but of the medium movie. Um, I think you're absolutely right. Unintentionally, I think if people wanted to do a great A-B comparison here, I would love to have seen the medium movie version of Longshot, which is, I don't know if you ever saw that, but that was the... the Seth Rogen, Charlize Theron uh, movie that came out last year, I believe, and was among 
it was just like a, a movie that I had a ton of affection for because I saw what it was trying to do and I thought it was so successful in doing them in some ways, but also felt the need to have huge action sequences and right. a lot of extraneous like let's also have like a huge you know a lot of stuff going on in the white house and then there's like an attack on the on Shirley's life and all this stuff going on that if you would strip that out cuz you were like we're going to make a medium movie you wind up having all the good stuff from that film minus the like we have to do this to fill up the screen now i obviously american pickle was not made for the time when no one could leave their house and it was going to be on HBO Max. So it's not a one-to-one comparison, but it's really interesting to think of not only filmmakers whose careers could have been better off if there was such a thing as the medium movie, but also movies that would have been better if they could have stripped out some of the bullshit yes. and just allowed themselves to be medium movies. Before I let you go... Yeah, I don't wait, wait a- but I, last point. This is, you're totally right. This is the blueprint for something it didn't even know it was going to be because in American Pickle... Are there other people in this movie? Like, no, have you no. ever seen a movie with such a small cast? I know it's it. it I, it's definitely. It looks like it was. It was made. It's almost was like a project where they, they they made it. You know, within each other's apartments a little bit because there's a couple of obviously like big scenes with like you're falling into a pickle vat or um, some stuff out. You know, exteriors in New York. But you could oh, exteriors in quote unquote New York. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Toronto I mean, it's like se- yeah. seven people standing next to a pickle stand. I mean, it's not exactly, um, you know, the Godfather Part Two arriving in America scene. Yes. So I, I just think that, uh, yeah, I think medium movie is a, is a thing. We should really, we should really pursue this. Um, and I'll, I'll tell Sean all about it, and I'll, I'll give you credit for it. TM copyright pending. Uh, Andy Greenwald. Uh, b- before we go. Just a quick note about Perry Mason, which concluded its first season last night. And uh, I say first, I want to emphasize first season because watching the way that they sort of navigated the end of the case of the season that they were, um, that the the show is pretty much um, focused on, which is the the Emily Dodson, the Charlie Dodson murder and who was being accused of it. His his mother, Emily, um, was being accused of it. And Perry was defending uh, Emily Dodson. It's been such a long time, I feel like, since I watched something where they very clearly were like, yeah, there's going to be another season. <laughs> yeah, that right. It, there was no limited to this. It was like, oh, yeah, they're setting up all of these characters. Juliet Rylance is Della to be an associate next year. Shea Wiggum is going to go to the district attorney's office. Um, it, like, it, there's, It's clear that there is going to be another case next year. And I almost like was very charmed by the elegance of that and the and the the forward thinking nature of that so few shows know whether or not they're going to get another shot at it whether it's because they have huge stars and those huge stars have other commitments like big little lies or something like that where it was like first season ended you're like that seems like it you know and then there was a popular demand i think for it to come back but to watch a show just kind of actually be like you know what the first season's really just the bones of it and I know that when we first talked about this in depth, I was like, you know, it's kind of trying to be true detective meets um, meets a procedural, a little bit more of a procedural and that there's a lot of like uh, terrible men doing terrible things and people staring in the mirrors and being like, am I a bad person? It, it essentially turned into a few good men by the end of it, all the way to the point where there was actually a somewhat fake courtroom scene where he tries to get somebody to admit they ordered the code red. 
And I was absolutely here for it. It 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 was it's it's totally where the show wants to go. He does not want him to be a mescal swim swim swilling World War One veteran who's haunted by what he saw overseas and thinks that the world is full of shit and and terrible people. It's about a crusading defense lawyer who thinks everybody deserves a good defense. It's pretty wild the permutations and what you know third level yoga poses necessary for a show to just be that. Yeah. Like it ended up in a place that was where all TV shows began for 40 years, including the television show Perry Mason. But in order to earn that or in order to be Trojan horsed onto HBO, a pre, at least in development terms, a pre HBO Max HBO, it had to pretend to be Law and Order Carcosa for an entire season, right? Mm-hmm. In order to like earn a skeptical, overly educated audience's respect to become an audience-pleasing show. It's, it's kind of bizarre, but it also is just such an interesting case study in what TV is right now. Um, I saw Alan Sepinwall in, in his slightly, you know, not as glowing review as yours in Rolling Stone. is <laughs> basically like, I don't, he just doesn't think that one should do a premise pilot as a season. You know what I mean? Sure. For people who don't yeah. know the term, a premise pilot is the thing where a character gets the job that he or she is going to have for the rest of the run or whatever that introduces you fully to what's going on as opposed to starting in media res like someone's already a lawyer. So it's really what it is to me is just a wild flex. And it kind of always has been from the beginning when I when I sampled the show in terms of the money behind it, the HBO muscle behind it, the talent behind it, and probably more than anything else, the star power all the way behind it, which is Robert Downey Jr. And this was yeah. originally developed to be a, a, basically a vanity project for himself. So really only Tony Stark saying, I'm going to come do television for you could earn you in this day and age the right to say, we're going to do a season-long origin story to become the thing you already know already. And yeah. it makes and me I, interested, though, in the second season. Sure. And I would say this, that even though this season had really good performances from Juliet Rylance and Chris Chalk, who plays Mason's new investigator and... Uh, you know, I, I do think that there were three performances that they're going to need to replace next season to keep this, keep the vibes going. Because for as good as Matthew Reese is and as good as Juliet Rylance and Chalk and Shea Wiggum are, I think that they're going to need to find replacements for Tatiana Maslany, John Lithgow, and Gail Rankin. Because in various cases, I don't necessarily think they're going to be big or at all parts of season two. Uh, but were the they were the gear-shifting talents that this show needed. They were the people who brought like a completely different energy or grounded the show or gave it a kind of patna of like, we know what we're doing and uh, that they're going to be tough to replace. And not to say that there's not like a huge bullpen of people out there who can do it, but I thought that Maslany in a lot of ways saved this show in the first season. I'm going to give you a counter argument, which is to say, well, first of all, you're right. You're 100% right about needing to have uh, heavy hitters, you know, on, on to, to to come up and 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 continue to elevate the show above anything else that it's being anything else that's competing with. But I'm going to run. I'm going to give you a counter argument, which is say it's not going to be hard to get them. Sure. Because the one thing that the last few years of TV have taught us, and even my own experience making TV, is actors want to act, and what actors really, 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 really want to do is act in a well-run, smooth-running operation that only lasts one year and shoots close to home. And the first season earned them the right to say to almost anyone, come hang out. 
mm-hmm. come hang out. You know, we'll, we'll give you scenery chomping, beautiful, exciting scenes. You can play against type. You're working with the best of the best in terms of network and in terms of um, production design. There, you know, we're not going to skimp on anything. And especially now, this was always the case, but especially now, once you know, we can even get production going in this country again. People don't want to go to Canada. They don't want to go to Budapest. You can film in L.A. Uh, yep. Come on. So I, I think that the, 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 this is a show that even actors who you think are not gettable are going to be like, get me that. Absolutely. All right. Well, Andy, pleasure to talk to you. I'll let you get back to your life. Uh, I, I wish you could see what I'm doing right now. I mean, can you even imagine? Uh, I just imagine like you just have like, you're in like full... I don't know what it like maybe like full Mandalorian um <laughs> cosplay. <laughs> it's not that, but what you guys should know as I as I duck out, but we'll return obviously for the Lonesome Dove conversation, is that I just noticed 40 minutes into our podcast, a stuffed dog peeking around a pile of sheets and looking at me like hmm. fucking Baba Baba Duke. It is scary. <laughs> so I do it for you, stuffed dog. I do it for you. This is my life. (laughs) All right. That's it for Andy. Micah and Justin coming up next. And then after that, Andy comes back and we talk Lonesome Dove, uh, the first episode of our Summer of Dove Lonesome Pod explosion. All right, Greenwald, thank you so much, man. Giddy up, Baranskis. All right, guys, thanks for listening to today's watch. So here's the rest of the show. We're going to talk to Micah Peters and Justin Charity about their upcoming first episode or first new episode of Sound Only, which is on the Ringer Podcast Network. You can go subscribe to that wherever you listen to podcasts. And they have a great show planned for you where it's essentially this broad strokes pop culture show that starts with something that's very relevant, very urgent, very current. And then it's going to keep going deeper and deeper and deeper in this sort of wide-ranging rabbit hole conversation about popular culture largely centered around, I suppose you could loosely say the millennial lifestyle, but also about the state and art of criticism um, and taking in everything from animated video games to things that you find on Twitter, YouTube, wherever else you're finding your content these days, plus general popular mainstream culture. So it's actually just a fascinating conversation about pop culture in the 21st century. It feels very much of this moment. Micah and Justin are two of the smartest people I know, and it's really exciting to have them back on on the Ringer Podcast Network. So let's get into my conversation with Micah and Justin about Sound Only and about some of the stuff that they're listening to and watching right now. Okay, everybody expects us to have an anime podcast. Micah Peters, Justin Charity, at long last... Are they podcasting once again about anime? No. I'm Justin Charity. And I'm Micah Peters. Honestly, this podcast might turn out to be like the Eddie Murphy, Martin Lawrence movie Life, except neither of us is in prison. And in fact, we're not even taping in the same location. But we will be talking a lot about the millennial life, you know, music, video games, Strange stuff from the dark corners of the internet that piques our interest. People think this is going to be, oh, a little topic A. Oh, what's topic B? Oh, a little, you know, chit chat. No. Every time you tune into this podcast, we are going to lock you into a room for 45 minutes and we are going to do criticism. We are going to get to the bottom of every Scooby-Doo mystery that the discourse produces for us each week. Mark my word. Man, that was that was a lot. But anyway, we are excited about it. We are excited. We're excited. We're super excited. I'm Justin Charity. And I'm Micah Peters. 
and this is Sound Only. We're back on August 11th. Catch us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. Let's go. Guys, thank you so much for joining. Micah Peters, Justin Charity are here. I wanted to talk to them about... I, I described it as a phoenix rising from the ashes. Is that an appropriate <laughs> image? Sound <laughs> Only is, is back this week. Uh, I've got a chance to listen to a couple of the dress rehearsals. Let's just put it that way. And I'm so excited for everybody else to hear this podcast because it's really, really good. Um, if you listen to the trailer... There's a couple of things in there that I wanted to talk about. But the first thing I wanted to talk about was Charity saying that Sound Only is going to engage in some criticism-ass criticism. You know, like some really (laughs) getting getting after some criticism. And it's a complicated thing to do these days. Um, I hope I'm not revealing too much by saying that in in some of your dress rehearsal episodes, you, you touched on this subject and how kind of strange it is to go from to really actually engage in the form of criticism these days. So that's kind of what I wanted to talk to you guys about today and also just welcome you to the show and talk about whatever you're watching. So how are you guys doing? First of all, Charity, what's up? I mean, I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for having us on, Chris. Michael, welcome. Why, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm doing all right. Thank you. For people who haven't gotten a chance to hear from the trailer, why don't you tell them what you guys are trying to do with Sound Only? Well, we originally were doing an anime podcast and we had a lot of fun doing an anime podcast about Neon Genesis Evangelion. But instead so much of... fun that each of the recording sessions went to like four hours. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> With a lot of notes. Beyond With, binge mode. Yeah. Beyond. Yeah. Uh, a lot of notes. Four hours per six episodes of television. <laughs> um, and instead of doing that to ourselves again, uh, we kind of wanted to expand the mandate, right? Like instead of having an anime podcast, we wanted to have sort of a larger podcast where we can talk about anime, but we can also talk about other stuff so that we can sort of have a more, I think, eclectic, critical mindset. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Micah, I mean, like for, for you, it's it's interesting because... You've obviously done, you know, you talked about music on 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 Shuffle, and you talked about uh, anime on on Sound Only. But you, were you looking to have like a larger, sort of more broader, general cultural conversation in the pod? Yeah. So I think that if you read, you know, both of our writing or have listened to the couple of podcasts that we've done for the site, um, Charity with Damage Control, me with On Shuffle. Uh, both of us with uh, several recapable shows. It's more like we tend to take stuff and place it into a larger context and also like to be in conversation with other things that are going on. Um, But then some of those discussions are too like essentially 21st century to have like in written form Mm -hmm. uh, or to do anywhere else than on a podcast. So basically we wanted a space to do that. But I do do it with music. I have done it with anime, but we also do it with movies and TV and possibly with Jake Paul. <laughs> you know, if it comes <laughs> to that. There's going to be a wide variety of topics covered, but one thing that I've noticed from the episodes that I've heard so far, uh, which are obviously very much time sort of, you know, whether it was after a Chappelle, con- like after the Chappelle special that dropped a few few weeks back or... Uh, whatever is the topic that you guys are talking about, you sort of use it as a jumping off point. And then there's this kind of like rabbit hole structure that you guys go down where it's like, here's the thing that everybody is talking about, but here's the thing that everybody should be thinking about. That's essentially the structure of the show, right? Yeah. And I think a big part of how we've 
try to walk through, you know, structuring the show, structuring the episodes, right, is what feels like the inherent difficulty of doing criticism in the 21st century, right? With like the internet feels like a very uh, a tumultuous space to do criticism. <laughs> and there are a lot of contested things about media and in social media and web writing at the moment. And I do think sometimes like I feel great about writing and there are other times when I have a critical concern where I actually think it might be more illuminating to talk something through in a space in like a podcast space with Micah, um, you know, and I, I think that's the real mission behind the podcast is sort of to, to work against the ephemeral fast paced nature of how a lot of criticism seems to happen in social media channels and, and even in web writing and sort of slow it down and, and put it in our little vacuum called yeah. sound only and work it out there. I was wondering whether you guys felt like it, you know, in August of 2020 and for how long you felt like that, if this, if you do, that criticism is necessarily adversarial towards the things that it's talking about. Because I think one of the things that's been happening over the last eight years that Andy and I have been podcasting together is that we have kind of noticed a shift in the landscape, a shift in the way that people relate to popular culture and art in general from, I, I think at least in the beginning, really healthy, but often somewhat, um, I guess, snooty way of looking at things. And it was, it was, but it was adversarial. Like, I think that you would watch something, you would listen to something, you read something, and you would think about it in terms of what's wrong with it, how is this kind of like not necessarily fulfilling its promise as a piece of culture? And then I think we've seen a shift happen, at least in the conversations that we have, more towards fandom, where somebody is essentially like coming to something as a fan and thinking about whether or not something is satisfying their desires as a fan. Micah, you're somebody who I think of as a very passionate fan of a lot of things, but I also think of yourself, you as a really thoughtful critic of a lot of things. Do you get what I'm saying about this sort of like this kind of change in, in the starting stance a lot of people take when they're talking about art. Yeah, I mean, like, it's basically you have to hold two ideas in your mind that aren't actually competing, like, and as so it should be pretty easy to do without friction is that I love this thing and I would like it to be better in these ways, which is what, I mean, like, the job tends to be. But yeah, I mean, like, I think that also, to your point, there had been a shift to like towards like the pure fandom of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it makes sense, right? Like fan driven stuff has kind of become the most popular, popular culture, whether it's Star Wars, whether it's Game of Thrones, whether it's Marvel, whether, and I think that that's kind of like invaded into all discourse now is like whether or not you, you are, uh, like whether I don't want to go as far as say stand for something, but like whether or not you are like a passionate believer in this project or not, and that is the kind of filter through which your criticism is shot. Yeah, and it I think the thing that's distressing about it in the era of the internet, right, is that it that's such a universal shift that it doesn't even matter what medium or genre you're talking about. You know, you could be talking about movies, right, like blockbusters, or you could be talking about musical genre. You could be talking about the Taylor Swift album. Sure. Right? Um, and look, I think that that means that the the environment in which criticism is published, it, it feels very... It can feel hostile sometimes because it's filled, it's filled with fans and stands. Um, I do think that critics should 
kind of suck it up, right? And just accept that, like, <laughs> yeah. Like, part of part of being a critic <laughs> is just sucking it up. But yeah. I, I do. There think are other I, things to do. Like, yeah. Like, if you but like it's, also, it's also if you're a really fine grain hater, uh-huh. you, live, you live for that tension. In a way. Yeah, it's just like you, 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 you. Like, there's <laughs> a, bit, a bit of a perverse enjoyment out of it. Like, um, yeah. Yeah, I, like it's <laughs> fine grain hater is a really good way of putting it. <laughs> but but I do think that is that how in I that would describe you. That is how I would describe you, Charity, a fine grain hater. Fine yeah. <laughs> but I do think that the environment being such that yeah, fan culture really has sort of it feels like it's annexed the wider internet in such a big way that I think that's why I'm excited to do a podcast like this, right? Because mm-hmm. it feels more like. It feels like critics increasingly are going to have to find ways to carve out these spaces, whether it's like the watch or whether it's sound only carve out spaces where they can do the work of criticism, sort of regardless of the prevailing, the prevailing winds of fandom, you know? Yeah. I mean, Mike, one of the complicated things that I think is happening now is that like when I first started writing about music, so in like the mid late nineties, you had like a lot of different options, but for the most part, a lot, I think for, for the most part, people were like, I'm going to write about the text. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to write about the record at hand and whether or not I think the record does something and the extracurricular stuff that a record would do. So if like I was writing about bombs over Baghdad at the time of its release, I might write something that was about a personal experience, or I might write something about the state of the world at that time, but it was essentially reacting to the thing that was in between the grooves of the record that I was hearing and and what these guys were saying. And that's changed so much now where I think we're almost expected to be writing about a perceived reaction to a piece of art rather than the art itself. You've kind of grown up in that wave. Like I think, I think you've kind of matured as a person and as a critic in the time when charity might bridge it a little bit more, but I think that you definitely came up in a time where in like talk writing about folklore is almost besides the point you're really writing about the reaction to folklore has that been something that you have felt firsthand and and how complicated has that been well yeah i mean like it is something that i've felt firsthand because you are like despite the fact that you existed in these pre-digital spaces because you grew you necessarily grew up in the 90s or whatever you were around when, like, you don't really remember what it was like before YouTube. And also, like, you encounter all of this. You encountered a lot of different types of music for the first time in digital spaces, like, on social media. So, therefore, like, while you can appreciate, like, say, a certain artist's myth-making, and, mm-hmm. like, that is essential, you also, you know are immediately doing the work of deconstructing it like this at the minute that it comes out because you're doing it online with a bunch of other people like and that's just the way that everybody interacts with it and that interaction is as important in the discussion almost as the music has become as important as important in the discussion almost as the music itself so you have to include it when you're talking about like a body of work when it comes out yeah and then also so many of the most I guess relevant or at least uh, talked about artists have this like extra art life that we also have to take into account when we're talking about them, whether it's Kanye or whoever else. Charity, have you been feeling that too? That that sometimes 
talking about a thing gets overwhelmed with talking around the thing. Yeah, and it's weird because I think there's like an extreme reduction of that argument that can make it sound like we're saying that millennials invented the idea of celebrity, which is sure. not quite right. But I do think that someone like Drake marks the shift into, oh, this person's from this person's first album onward, their albums weren't like books of music so much as they were meta narrative objects. They're almost sort of like seasons of a soap opera that you're expected to keep up with. Yeah. And I think, you know, over the past decade or so, um, yeah, increasingly that, you know, whether you're talking about the melodrama of rappers or you're talking about the melodrama of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? Like you're sort of talking about this this meta narrative serialization that turns everything into sort of um, a sort of celebrity trivia. And again, I think a lot of that is driven by the tyranny of fandom. I would go so far as to characterize it. And it's not, you know, <laughs> the tyranny of fandom and the things becoming like a repository for internet for ideas that are already on the internet. <laughs> yeah. But the, <laughs> like, I mean, the thing it's is... basically, yeah. Yeah. I like, I mean, yes, yes. That is the, the tyranny of fandom. Uh, like tends to homogenize things and thus like your critical concerns become extra textual. Yes. Like necessarily. But you have to work with that. Like, you know, we're so far gone into that, that uh, being how celebrity and, and art uh, and popular culture work now that, you know, I don't, I don't want to make sound only out to be a place that we're carving out to escape these things altogether. Like if anything, I want it to be a space where we sort of take that fandom on its terms and talk, talk about it and talk through its conclusions and work out what we really think about it. Um, so as much as we think through questions of, you know, how adversarial is a critic's relationship with an artist or with a body of work, you know, I hope we are working through questions of how adversarial the critic's relationship with the fan mm -hmm. is. Because um, mm -hmm. these are interesting questions, even if, even if the shifts that have sort of provoked those questions are kind of frustrating. I mean, like, I will say that that, is we want to stress that this is like very much <laughs> walking into the woods about certain subjects. Like we'll take the, the structure of each episode is pretty simple and easy to remember. We're going to take a simple question uh -huh. about a person, place, or thing on the internet, you know, probably pertaining to rap, anime, or what have you. And then we're going to complicate it until we get an answer. Um, <laughs> that's, uh, that's more or less how each of these test runs is gone and how we plan to handle the rest of it. Well, I, I want to stop dancing about architecture here and give people a sense of the kinds of things that you're going to be talking about. But the easiest way I can think of to ask you about that is just basically how you've been entertaining yourselves over the last couple of weeks and months. Um, it's basically been the topic of the conversations that Andy and I have been having. But I was wondering, you know, how drastically your habits have changed in terms of what you're watching and whether or not you're necessarily looking to be challenged, comforted, uh, your, whether your curiosity levels have been higher or lower over the last couple of months, and just generally what shit you're feeling and what we can expect to be uh, hearing you guys talk about on the pod. So, Michael, we can start with you. Right, so... Um, candidly, like as a point of disclosure, uh, initially... In the beginning of quarantine, I was just like, yeah, I'm going to get to this entire 
lists. I'm going to watch Ganja and Hess, and I'm going to watch all the Bruce Lee movies again, and I'm going to do all this other stuff. But then you kind of settle into like watching all of the comforting things that you've seen a sure. million times, like Mask of the Phantasm or The Count of Monte Cristo or whatever. I don't know what that yeah. might be for you. Those are just a couple for me. Like, I was going to learn German. <laughs> that didn't yeah, happen. you know, I had such grand designs, but um, I think like as it went on, like you are... Honestly, watching the th I, like, I just would be watching the things that everybody was, wa was watching just to participate in the larger conversation because you just need other people to talk to and things to fixate on. So yeah, of course, like I watched Tiger King. Like most recently, I've been watching Umbrella Academy, but mm -hmm. like, kind of, it hasn't been sticking for me. Um, and I noticed, like, also talking to a lot of other people. Um, like I guess in my media friend group, but also other people on the internet, um, that it's it's like a difficult thing to stick with. Like the even though the energy of it is something that critics slaughter and most of their reviews is just like it keeps it up from beginning to end. But it's difficult to watch past the four episode for most sure. of the people that I know. And I was trying to figure out why. And the thing is, is that like Umbrella Academy is actually structured like an anime. Like there's a very like complicated conceit that you have to immediately accept that these are the terms of the world like from the onset there's a bunch of colorful characters that have like amazing abilities that don't really translate into like the physical world mm -hmm. without looking goofy you know yeah um the color palette the way that the scenes are like structured um but anyway yeah like those kinds of things are <laughs> discussions that might pop up on the podcast whether or not Umbrella Academy is is shadow anime. Would, yeah. <laughs> Charity, what about you? I actually have had a, a tremendously difficult time doing the things I normally do. Like, I, I don't I have a much harder time reading mm -hmm. post-lockdown. Oh, that's impossible. Uh, I, I really can't focus on TV shows. And so I, I've ended up baking a lot, uh, learning some programming, and... Mm. I mean, what else? I mean, mostly that. And I, I can't even really play video games like I, I was playing before. I can play games if I'm reviewing them for the for the website or to talk about Micah with them on his recommendation. But sure. Yeah, I've been baking and programming yeah. and jogging a lot. And like even TV, I really don't like I watch tons of Twitch streams now. And that's huh. just that's just my lifestyle at this point. I've watched yeah. maybe one TV show in, in lockdown and hundreds of hours of Twitch probably at what this was point the in the background. Show? I actually watched Upload because my girlfriend uh, yeah. was into Upload. So I watched it with her. I mean, it's it, wherever you can find any kind of pleasure with it. I was curious whether or not you guys had been legitimately thrilled by anything in the last couple of months. I, I honestly had an experience on f Saturday, Friday night. I saw a movie on Shudder, which is a streaming horror um, service that I recommend if you like horror, you should definitely check it out. And they have a movie called Host on. Um, it's 56 minutes. And it's the first uh, quarantine horror movie. They made it during core. And it's entirely... It, it's, a, it's a Zoom chat uh, that they a group of friends decide to have a seance on a Zoom. And shit goes really wrong. Uh, and it is phenomenal. Like, it has no business being as good as it is. And it is so fucking scary and absolutely dead on in terms of like, not only just the like, oh, wait, wait, I didn't mean to talk over you there, kind of like mechanics of Zoom to talk, but like even like the way 
people have anxiety about what can be seen in the background of their screen and what they're seeing in other people's screens. And it's also really interesting because it's 56 minutes, so it's like barely a movie. But it, it really like honestly gave me like a real charge for the first time in a while. So I don't know. You guys should have to check it out if you, if you get a chance. Yeah, yeah, you talked about that before, like the your your uh, predilection for watching horror movies to shock yourself away. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's true. There's, but there's also I before because like, I'm gonna forget because I don't know if you've watched it yet, Chris, but you're gonna love it. Is the Anelka documentary? Uh, on I Netflix. fucking adore it. I come on, are you it's, kidding me? It's it's incredible. Like yeah. it's, especially like I just I I like the um. I like the way it illustrates how he was just more ambitious about his peace of mind than he was about his career. So this is a very, like an infamous, I would say, uh, footballer from from Europe named Nicholas Anelka who played it for a lot of the big clubs in Europe, Arsenal, Real Madrid. And he recently has been in the subject of a, of a Netflix documentary. But go ahead, Micah. Right. So Anelka, young phenom, comes on to the part de prince for PSG at 16, which I mean, like, think about, like, imagine if like LeBron debuted at 16 instead of at 18, whatever, yeah. like let's for a parallel um, scores in his first game. And then like, you know, legend takes off from there. But the thing is that like, he's one of those characters that was like from even then very, very confident in his self-worth. Mm -hmm. Um, so, like, he'd show up at Arsenal and be like, I should be starting at 17. Like, he'd show up at Real Madrid and be like, I should be the lead striker. The even team though should be I built around me, yeah. The, the team should be built around me. And it's really, like, an interesting test study case in, like, sports psychology as far as, like, needing to, th needing to think that you're the best while also appreciating the limits of your game. Um, yeah. But like the friction that that causes throughout you know one transcendent talent's career yeah it's um, a it's an incredible portrait of tortured greatness i guess it's the best way to put yeah. it yeah yeah um can you guys give me a little bit of a preview give our listeners a little bit of preview of what you're going to be talking about on the first episode of sound only if you feel comfortable no spoilers but you know no just spoil it you're talking about verses <laughs> yes you talk about verses we talk about, about verses we talking about DJ battles on Instagram live. Yeah. And, but the thing that people should know about the pod is the cool thing is like, yes, they're talking about the versus battles that have been happening throughout the summer, but also whether or not any of this COVID era, hey, we figured out this new way to do things. If right. any of that shit is going to stick after, after this is done. And should it stick and the right. ethics of it sticking. Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, the ethical right. moral quadri of it sticking. I think it's right. actually a perfect first episode for people to hear because it's like, what if you took this thing that people are aware of and paying attention to and then pushed it to its farthest, farthest reaches <laughs> right. of, of, in terms of the conversation? So I, I can't wait for people to hear Sound Only again. Uh, and thank you guys so much for, for coming on today and, and making some recommendations. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I appreciate you having us. All right, thanks to Micah and Justin. You can subscribe to Sound Only wherever you get your podcasts. And now, some of you have been waiting for this. I can't wait to get into it myself. This is the first, first chapter 
of me and Andy's four-part conversation about Lonesome Dove, the Larry McMurtry novel and the CBS miniseries starring Robert Duvall and Tommy Lee Jones. It's become something of an object of an obsession uh, for me and Andy this summer. I think it's given us a lot of joy to lose ourselves in this world and to just kind of get swept up in the majesty of this entire saga. So we wanted to talk about it. We thought it would be easiest to break the conversation up into four because there's four episodes of the CBS miniseries, which you can find. I think it's on Amazon. It's on iTunes. If you have stars, you can watch it for free. It's out there. I hope people have been reading along. I hope people have been watching along. We don't really spoil things if we can help it in this conversation. So if you're just watching by episode by episode, this is basically episode one. A lot of our conversation is about the novel, though, because the novel is something that's really had a pretty profound impact on both me and Andy's life. And it's been kind of awesome to know that that can still happen uh, this late in life and, and, you know, in 2020. So it's been it's been awesome texting with Andy about it. I can't wait to get our conversation on Mike. So let's just get right into it. It's episode one of our Lonesome Dove Talk. All right, Andy. I guess this is where we find out if we was meant to be cowboys. This is the first edition, first episode of our Lonesome Pod, our recap of Lonesome Dove, the novel by Larry McMurtry and and Lonesome Dove, the miniseries, which aired, God, I guess, what, 28 years ago on, on CBS? When did it air? <laughs> 31 years ago. 31 years ago. Current. We keep <laughs> yeah, it moving. Sure. Um, Andy and I have been talking about this for a while. Um, I think both of us, for the better part of a year, have been on this kind of journey where we've been moving in and out of the the flowing fields of Larry McMurtry's fiction and essays. And uh, we settled kind of into this, this shared zone where we were both reading these Lonesome Dove novels. We started off, obviously, with Lonesome Dove and its sequel, Streets of Laredo. And then there are some prequels, Dead Man's Walk and Comanche Moon. We're going to be talking mostly about Lonesome Dove, although there will be references to other works. And we're going to talk about it the way we're going to break this up is we're going to do basically one episode of the miniseries at a time, but using that mostly as like uh, a mile marker for where in the story we're going to discuss. So this is for my edition of Lonesome Dove. We're going to be talking about the first like 280 pages. It's loosely a couple hundred pages. Andy, I thought I would just say something at the beginning here about Lonesome Dove's sort of journey to us before we talk about Mm -hmm. our kind of discovery of Lonesome Dove. Because Lonesome Dove took a pretty long and winding road to its its great American novel capital letters status. Uh, it started out actually as like as, a, as an, an idea for a movie between McMurtry and Peter Bogdanovich. And he had collaborated with Bogdanovich on the adaptation of Last Picture Show, which obviously launched the careers of, of people like Sybil Shepard and Jeff Bridges. And was it's just still a, a stunning film and a stunning novel. And it was initially imagined as a script for John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, and Henry Fonda would Jimmy Stewart and John Wayne playing the Woodrow Call and Augustus McRae roles, and Henry Fonda was going to play Jake Spoon. And it was going to be this kind of capstone Western for these guys' careers. And it would look back with some, you know, real honesty and sober, sober eyes on, on the West and the mythology around it. And it kind of floundered mostly because Wayne and Stewart did not want to make the movie. And McMurtry because, went on. Because they, they didn't want to be old. I mean, because and they didn't they, want to be old. Yeah. They didn't want to be a part of closing the book on a book that they and their careers had written. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, McMurtry went on to find tons of success with novels like Terms of Endearment, which were also adapted to famous movies. And I think is one of the most sort of successful and well-known literary novelists, probably of, I would say, almost the post-war period from the 60s till today. 
His books are regularly regularly adapted. He's a you know a really charming public figure when he is in public. Uh, his you know his his sort of commentary is always is always really acerbic and and smart. And this book is a masterpiece. I, I know, and it's a, it, it was initially submitted to Simon and Schuster as a sixteen hundred page first draft. And what we get is this huge tome that was sort of modeled after Victorian novels, after Don Quixote, and the stories that McMurtry heard from his uncles growing up in in Archer, Texas, about ranching and cattle driving. And it's a phone book of a novel, and it'll break your heart, and it'll sweep you away. It won the, the 1986 Pulitzer for Fiction, and it's probably one of the, I think, most beloved novels of the last 40 years. And funnily enough, it remains a bit of a sore spot for McMurtry, who had this to say years later when he wrote the preface for a later edition of Lonesome Dove. He said, it's hard to go wrong if one writes at length about the Old West, still the phantom leg of the American psyche. I thought I had written about a harsh time and some pretty harsh people, but to the public at large, I had produced something nearer to an idealization. Instead of a poor man's inferno, capital I like is in Dante's, filled with violence, faithlessness, and betrayal, I had actually delivered a kind of gone with the wind of the West, a turnabout I'll be mulling over for a long, long time. And we're obviously going to mull over Lonesome Dove in tons of different ways. But why the hell are we doing this, Andy? Like, why in 2020 we decided to dedicate this time to Lonesome Dove? There's a couple of reasons. I think one is circumstance, context, age, and perspective, which is to say that during this awful lockdown and, and period in American history, both of us have been, like many people, have been looking for escape, joy, wherever we can find it. And picking up a, I mean, my, my copy is almost 900 pages, over 900 pages. Uh, that seemed like a pretty good way to do it. And losing myself in this book over the course of, you know, almost two weeks was one of the most purely pleasurable reading experiences of my life. Of my life, I absolutely adored it. I think one of the other reasons why it interests us is because one of uh, something that we love to talk about on this podcast, when, whether we're talking about albums or TV shows or movies, is there are moments when there is intent behind a work of art, and that intent is often multifaceted and complicated and difficult to parse, and then there's the reception. And there's always that excruciating moment, like when the ball leaves the pitcher's hand and they can't control it anymore. And we are as much interested in the mythology of Lonesome Dove as we are in Lonesome Dove itself. And you alluded to it, this idea that McMurtry, who is deeply unsentimental, wrote a book that is a sentimental favorite of American culture to the degree that there was a spike in children named Gus after 1985. That Larry McMurtry, who grew up the children of cattlemen in arid West Texas, rejected the cowboy way of life, was not not for him, Mm -hmm. hid in the barn and read books, went to graduate school eventually in Houston and just was happiest in the library, dreamed of being accepted by a literary community that kind of only wanted cowboy stories from people from Texas and, and sort of expressly rejected him, even though he, was, he is as intellectual, as literary as just about anybody else. I mean, in addition to being an incredibly prolific writer, as you alluded to, Chris, he's also a bookstore maven yeah. and owns a store called Booked Up in Archer City, Texas, that has maybe more books than any other store in the world. And so for years, he rejected writing a Western or a cowboy. He was writing about in the 60s, what was then his own memories of, of a, a changing Texas, and then wrote a, a number of books that you and I adore that go from sort of a swinging Houston in the 70s to Hollywood and books that were well-received and were adapted you know, spectacularly to Hollywood, but kind of never found popular traction. 
And then he wrote the thing that he said he was never going to do, and it exploded his career, got him the Pulitzer Prize and all the acumen that, I, you know, that he, he probably secretly did covet. And what we have in Lonesome Dove is, as I said, it, it's just a brilliant, staggering book. Uh, there's an essay by Jeff Dyer that we'll link to or let people see where he, he correctly says that this is that kind of book where the words, you lose the distance between yourself and the page. And you just, it just comes alive in you. And you just spend hours thinking about it when you're not spending hours reading it. But it is also one of those really fascinating events in popular culture where what was intended is so divorced from what it was and how it was received. And I think we're going to get into that as we go through it. Other examples of this phenomenon would be like Born in the USA by Bruce Springsteen, which is a song that is harshly critical about what it means to be born in the USA and yet was a, you know, a hallmark of Ronald Reagan's reelection campaign and is thought to be a very nostalgic, patriotic song by a lot of people who love it. I think about David Chase with The Sopranos, who was just like, my whole life, I've been haunted by the specter of being Italian-American and the mob. And I think that these people are nihilistic monsters. And everybody wanted to talk, go out for Gabagool with him afterwards, no matter how yeah. awful he made these people. So obviously, McMurtry wrestles with his own legacy in subsequent books. And we won't really talk about it till the end. But Streets of Laredo, the sequel, which is named, which is actually what the original Bogdanovich screenplay was named kind of wrestles with it in a much more explicit way, um, his reckoning with the West. But but look, this is a novel that was described by Texas Monthly Magazine on its 25th anniversary as like the ultimate Texas novel. And yet the book is barely in Texas. It's about people who ran out of things to do in Texas and have to go to Montana yeah. to feel alive. And it's not like when you're spending time in Texas in this novel, you're like, man, Texas sounds great. No, it, it's amazing. He thought he was being completely unsentimental. And yet, Everybody fell in love with it. And that push-pull, because the book is so lovable. The characters, even the worst of them are, 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 are almost, well, not all of them. Not, we're not talking blue duck here. But like all the cowboys, even call, you know, are admirable or lovable in all sorts of complicated, wonderful ways. And yet, and yet. So this just felt like a rich text for us to get into. Yeah. Um, I think both of us come to it as you know, cowboy agnostic. I think I probably am a lot more fired up about Westerns and, and the Old West than you are like growing up. Well, I think prior to say. two weeks ago or whatever it was, yes. <laughs> yeah, now you just were chaps. No, I'll, I'll echo what Andy said and just say that, you know, the best description I have of my experience with Lonesome Dove over the last couple of week, weeks is Bastion, a never-ending story, like up in the attic, just crushing, yeah. crushing tape, just like reading just burrowing himself into the world of this novel. And I got to say, like, I always had a little bit of jealousy when I heard my dad talk about experiences he had had with adventure books, like whether it was reading Robinson Crusoe or whether it was reading, you know, James Fenimore Cooper or these sort of like typical young boy adventure books that you read. Because I was like, I never felt transported by novels in that way. Mm -hmm. I often would find myself thrilled or completely immersed in them but i never felt myself being carried away on like this river of story you know and just forgetting everything around me and that's been something that i think in a lot of ways you wonder whether or not this could have happened at any other time for both of us because we are kind of limited in what we are taking in or experiencing in the outside world now that we were really open to the idea of being completely transported to another place and i think that McMurtry has talked before about how when he writes essays, and I, if anybody listening is looking for a good example of his essay work, I would recommend Walter Benjamin at the Dairy Queen, which is an incredible collection. It's half literary criticism, half memoir, but it's just stunning. 
He talks about how when he writes nonfiction, he needs every sentence to make sense. He needs every sentence to connect to the next one and the next one because he's making an argument. He's making a trying to make a coherent point. But when he writes fiction, he's essentially doing it in a trance. I think that that can sometimes work against McMurtry. McMurtry mm-hmm. has definitely got a body of work that has some clunkers in it. Uh, I would say that his clunkers are better than a lot of people's best work. But there is definitely books where you're like, man, I'd love to know what was happening in his personal life when he was writing this. Right. Um, but Lonesome Dove is probably the perfect balance between refinement and pure expression, where you just feel this story tumbling out of this guy and out of this country, but you also feel like he is completely in control. I agree with that. I think that you, you referred to his public persona as charming. I think it's cantankerously charming. I mean, yeah. he's, he's, he's kind of a crank and in a, in a wonderful way. I mean, this is a guy who very intentionally wore blue jeans to the Oscars when he won for Brokeback Mountain a few years ago. But you also do get the sense that writing for him is is pure, and it is what he does, and it is what he loves to do. Not the case for many people, your boy included, who have made a career out of writing. It is hard work, and it is not always fun. But he seems to love it, and it just takes him places. And so sometimes those places are a book that the book he wrote just before uh, Lonesome Dove, which is this totally minor just sort of very light DC comedy called Cadillac Jack that I'm struggling with, despite having been reading it for eight months. And then sometimes it's Lonesome Dove when he just taps a vein and there's something else there. And it is contagious when someone clearly was taking as much pleasure out of writing it as you are uh, out of reading it. And there's a lot of, I think, not enough scholarship about this book, but Chris and I will link to this, this Texas Monthly article we're referring to where people are like, correctly being like Cormac McCarthy gets all the attention but Cormac McCarthy is just dark you know and it's appealing to people who want things to be and this I don't even mean to shit on Cormac McCarthy nobody needs me to do that he's he's great and you can have both but those books are very very mannered and written in a way that is appealing to an intellectual mindset uh this Larry McMurtry writes popular fiction even when it's not popular and in that he's more like a Dickens right he just mm-hmm. somehow wrote great literature that filled 800 pages of a mass market paperback that anybody, even people who've never heard of Cormac McCarthy, could read and find something to enjoy in. And that also mirrors, I think, our taste, kind of, in terms of television and other things we talk about. So it's all lined up for us. Maybe, should we... This is actually very Lonesome Dovey that, remember, that book is about a cattle drive and it doesn't start until 250 pages in, which is the length of most novels. In some ways, I think, you know, I'll be really curious to see. I've seen on our Facebook page that a lot of people are reading the book. I've seen on our Facebook page that people have just decided to watch the miniseries first and sort of see where they're at with that. They are completely different experiences in this one regard. The miniseries essentially does a very faithful but economic job of moving through the story so that at the end of, I think it's an Mm -hmm. hour and 17, hour 30 minute first episode, you are 280 pages into the book. Whereas the book, and especially the pace of the book, feels very basically intrinsically related to the action on the page. So the time they spend dilly-dallying around Lonesome Dove, this small town in Texas on the border, and kind of trying to decide what they're going to do, whether or not they're going to follow this guy Jake Spoon's advice that they go take a cattle herd up to Montana because it's the last pure frontier and what last adventure these guys can have. Because I think everybody in this group seems to know either consciously or subconsciously that this is the last adventure. I mean, I think even Woodrow call when someone says, well, what will we do when we get back? And he's like, we're not coming back. But that, that whole feeling of them milling around Lonesome Dove and getting ready to go 
it's it's also a very meandering story in in the book itself. I mean, he just kind of pokes his head into different people's lives and introduces us to a lot of different characters. Yeah, I, I think, um, and I, I don't know if we said this at the top, we should say it again. We're going to do our best to not spoil the yeah. segments of the book or the miniseries as we go in the case people are, are parceling it out to go along with it. We're going to limit our future conversation. We're not going to say what happens to these characters in part three of the miniseries or part three of our podcast. But I, I think that's exactly right. And so I kind of wanted to start at the very beginning, which is, you know, you, you, you grab this brick of a book or you dust off your parents VHS tape or whatever you're doing and you feel the weight of it or you see all the quotes the masterpiece you hear about how this was the the greatest thing ever on television even though I didn't even realize this the Emmys totally ignored it which is yeah. hilarious and it's super 18 Emmys. nominations and one win right uh for director yeah yeah which is really funny to think about but so you look at this and you feel the importance of it even the painting on the on the old mass market and hardcover edition feels like this is a epic of Americana as Simon Schuster intended to market it as. And it starts with a pig eating a snake. Mm -hmm. From the beginning, he's trying to tell you this isn't a monument. This isn't a statue. This isn't an ode to greatness or the American spirit. This is just some stuff that happened in a dusty, mean place and if you find moments of beauty, you can enjoy them, but they will be fleeting. And I, 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 I remember opening this book, and again, it was only a month ago, being like, why am I going to care about this? This is a book about pigs eating snakes. It's incredible to think that this book starts with these characters, and you know, people I think are familiar, but we'll say it again, these, these legendary Texas Rangers, and the Texas Rangers were the people who, and they were even exempted from Civil War service because of it. They were cleaning up the frontier. They were cleaning mm -hmm. out Texas. They had a, it was incredibly hard yeah, work. It was incredibly brutal. The latter brutal. Is, is probably more accurate, right? Yeah. Cleaning I mean, out. they they went to war and rode against the Comanches so that homesteaders and settlers could expand their territory further west and they could hold the, the relatively arbitrary frontier of the Rio Grande from Mexico. Yeah. And when we pick up our story, that's kind of done. Mm -hmm. It's not the natural starting place for a story. We're down to pigs eating snakes and... And uh, Gus McRae and Woodrow Call, who are partners and I guess friends, although that means something kind of different, brothers basically, have given up rangering and have opened kind of like a, I don't even know how you describe it. Like they rent animals, but not pigs yeah, and they dig like wells. Yeah, they basically have like a dirt farm. I mean, it, it's, it's a town that is barely getting by. They have some horses, right? Like I think they have, they have like a functional like cattle farm, but they don't really seem to sell anything or do anything. It, it and, is a one whore town. Yeah. To coin right. a phrase. <laughs> exactly. It's a place between here and there on the edge of something. And immediately you're kind of reminded that the, the frontier myth, and this is something I, you know, the reading this book has gotten me thinking about a lot. When you think about cowboys and all this stuff, like it really was only a couple years in the American experiment. So all those beloved movies and all the things that our parents or grandparents grew up idolizing, decades later was just a blip essentially when there was an active frontier and you know there was the, the, you could put some heroism on it at least in your imagination then it was over and so these are two men who have devoted their life to conflict against something intangible whether it was the unknown whether it was the frontier which kept moving whether it was um the american experiment or whatever they were doing it for they went to war against it and then they kind of won and then what now they're just digging holes to nowhere in a dust bowl. And where does that spirit, where does that go and how does it play out? And, and that's why 
though they've been sitting here drinking on the porch for 10 years, when Jake Spoon, their old uh, compañero, shows up and it's like, oh, I heard Montana's nice. Yeah. Call suddenly is like, unlike him, because he is, you know, the, the by the book guy. with And is no, not a cattleman. Not a cattleman. No connection to emotions, hope, anything. It's like, we're going to go there. We're going to do this thing that we've never done. And we're going to do something no one else has done because that is the only animating spirit in his body, even yeah. at whatever age he is when this book begins. And these guys are, I think that's where he starts to put his finger on the idea of a settled frontier versus a wild frontier. And what these guys are really looking for, because their idea of what civilization looks like, mm-hmm. even if it's something as sort of podunk and goat herding as, as Lonesome Dove is in the town itself, their idea of what the frontier should be is limitless. It's boundaryless and it's boundless. And they want the adventure and they want the danger and they want to cross all these rivers and, and drive these cattle. The cattle are kind of like almost a MacGuffin. What they really want to do is get to essentially the Canadian border from the Mexico border. They want to get someplace new. And, and it's very much a different definition of the American dream. Like if the, the 20th century definition of the American dream, I think was you can buy a house and settle mm-hmm. down and have kids there and, you know, milk and eggs will be cheap and plentiful and you can settle in. Like that's sort of the post-war American dream. The thing about Call and McRae, even though this might not even be, I, I, Gus might, I think certainly by the end of the book, and this is not a spoiler, Gus is more aware of this than Call is. Their dream was to build that world for other people, but they don't want to live in it. That has no appeal to them whatsoever. And you feel that torpor at the beginning. And I think if you're just starting the book and, and haven't been doing the things that Chris and I did later, you might not get it yet, right? Mm-hmm. Because the book's called Lonesome Dove. And yet they're in Lonesome Dove for 200 pages and it kind of sucks <laughs> for everybody. Yeah. The, even people who've started the book, if you don't make it to where that first episode of the miniseries ends, you might be wondering why you even signed up for this ride because they did all of this and for what? to sit and sweat all day and they don't even have a roof. Yeah, when you th- when you think about some of the other sort of great cattle drive stories, and I, I guess Red River would be the number one that comes to mind, and Bogdanovich had talked about how he wanted to make a Red River-esque film when he was working with McMurtry, and he obviously idolized Howard Hawks. Red River is essentially, it becomes mutiny on the bounty, but on horses. You know, it's about these younger cowboys who rebel against and then eventually, you know, work with... John Wayne's character, who's driving this cattle herd to Missouri from Texas. Lonesome Dove is a little bit more wandering. I mean, I think that these guys are trying to touch something or articulate something that's just out of their sort of intellectual capabilities to understand, but they just know that they can't sit still anymore. And that is that kind of rambunctiousness and that restlessness that you're talking about, where it's not necessarily about establishing anything as much as it is constant movement. And that's and that feeling of constantly being able to move through and across anything that's in your way, whether it's a river or you know three days of no water or whatever it is that they come across. The thing that I think jumps out at me or did jump out at me, even in the early stages of the cattle drive, once they leave Lonesome Dove, and there's like this whole other side story about a sheriff from Arkansas who's pursuing Jake Spoon for murdering his brother-in-law and that sheriff's wife, Elmira, who who then leaves Arkansas promptly after July's dis, you know, departure and she's going off to find the love of her life. And they wind up, you know, being the sort of B plot of this novel for the most part. I mean, the thing I for, wanna... for people who've read these books need to understand what McMurtry communicates to us is that the West is fucking huge 
and there are like 20 people there and you run into them constantly. Yes. And I'm cool yes. with it. I'm cool yeah. with it. I mean, I was trying to figure that out because this is something that comes up throughout the novel is that two people will be looking for one another for three months and you're just like, this is just, you guys are just not going to bump into each other. One's in Nebraska and the other is... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I but guess there are only so many roads. It does sound like there's like four roads. Yeah, and that yeah. eventually, like if you just like stopped and waited for someone in San Antonio, they would probably come through one way or the other. Also, these people are hungry and thirsty, full stop. But they're also <laughs> hungry and thirsty for goss. You yes. know what I mean? Like they want to know what's going on. And so that matters. And it also, you know, not to get, not to digress too much, but the idea of legends and legends spreading faster than reality. I mean, when Gus and Call leave Lonesome Dove and re-enter the world, other, I mean, there, there, there are moments when some people don't give them the respect that they're due, but generally people know who they are and they're famous, despite the fact that they've been, again, sitting on porches or digging wells for a decade. Yeah. So news does travel in a relatively small community. But sorry, I, I cut you off when you were. No, I was just going to say that it, it just early on in the book. And I think the thing that we could probably take from this first section is the two things that immediately get dispelled are a the idea of like Magnificent Seven, that this is some sort of like super powered, you know, Suicide Squad Justice League of Cowboys. It's not that it's basically Colin McRae, a scout named Dietz a boy named Newt of unknown paternal origin, which, mm. which comes up obviously a lot in the novel, uh, a prostitute named Lorena. She's with Jake and a couple of other people, PI, like a couple other, like basically ragtag group of stragglers. This dish erasure will not stand. Dish. Yeah. There's a bunch of different cowboys, Jasper Fant, the O'Brien brothers, all these guys. And they are moving across an absolutely heartless landscape. Yeah. pretty and there are parts of it that are beautiful and there are parts of it that the people who are moving across it are very in touch with on a almost like subatomic poetic level of just being like there's nothing better than watching the sun come up over the landscape but McMurtry's view of nature is brutal and Dave Hickey in that Texas Monthly article that you were referencing said he said Larry has something that my grandfather had which is a ruthless view of nature I remember watching a sunset with my grandfather as a kid. I said, isn't that beautiful? And he said, oh, yeah. And while you're admiring nature, nature is looking back at you and saying, yum, yum, here comes dinner. There is in Larry an idea that nature as this monstrous force in which we make our way very fragilely. Lonesome Dove is very good about this. And that's true. Um, yeah, that's there, there is a relentless savagery to this book. Um, it's just... It's a fact of, it is literally a fact of life. It is natural. It's Cruelty, matter of fact. Pain. It's not, and that is a, you know, that's like a difference between McCarthy and McMurtry in that McCarthy looks at violence as this almost like biblical act mm -hmm. of this original thing that we are born with. Whereas McMurtry, I think, looks at it as like a happen, a happen, an offshoot of nature and a product of being alive. And I think that we'll have a, a deeper conversation uh, as we go along about things that McMurtry does and the way he portrays characters in this book from the 80s, you know, you, with our contemporary state of mind, which is to say Dietz, the black character in the book, and Lorena, who's one of many fascinating women in the book, but is is the primary one. And speaking specifically about Lorena, I mean, there, there is, look, I, I was going to say certain things seem accurate. I, I don't know. I am not Texan. I have never led cattle. I, I am not a, a, a student of 19th century American history. But McMurtry has always excelled in all of his books from uh, Horseman Passed By and Last Picture Show all the way through in 
allowing his female characters, the women in his books, to be full-bodied, full-minded, full-hearted human beings with a full range of emotions. And to my eyes anyway, which are, of course are suspect to any degree, you know, to all sorts of degrees, she is a, a fully alive and realized character, partly because he is absolutely unstinting and again, unsentimental about the limits this society has placed on her mm-hmm. and what her options are and what her path has been and what it is likely to be. We don't lose sight of that. And that's something as we begin to talk about the differences between the book and the miniseries, that's something that I struggled with more in the miniseries because we we suddenly, that door is slammed shut. The window is slammed shut to her inner thoughts, yeah. what she really wants, how she feels about what's been done to her and what she has to do. And Diane Lane does a really good job in the miniseries, but I think you're that's a great example of the limitations of sometimes the limitations of telling a story on screen versus telling a story in a novel. And the psychological depth of characters in Lonesome Dove is actually quite subtle. You know, there's the old trope of action is character. I I think that that's actually really well suited for Lonesome Dove, but there's just not a lot of action. In fact, what it is is just every day kind of moving through these people's very, very, very fucking hard lives. You know, because that's what life was like back then is that you might do everything right and lose focus for a second and the worst possible thing could happen to you. You know, and that it, is the reality in which these people are living. But that doesn't mean that they don't daydream or that they don't have uh, reveries about different parts of their life or, or wish that they had something else going on in their lives that they could live for. And sometimes what they're living for is they don't even know. They're just like, I just feel like I'm supposed to keep moving forward. Yeah, I mean, to, to use Dietz as another example, one of the most amazing characters in the book there's a moment early on in these, it's in these first hundred pages where we're, we're suddenly with Dietz and it's talking about how he just kind of feels melancholy to the point of suicidal depression at mm-hmm. times and what it means for him to feel that way and what he looks forward to. And there are certain moments in nature that make him, that alleviate that pain and that feeling that tell us so much about him and who he is and what it means to be a black man in this world, a full partner essentially, but not fully. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, full in, maybe in, in the Hat Creek outfit but not in society yeah. not in society and even with limitations within the Hat Creek outfit and as a way to transition to talking about the miniseries as well um, in that Texas Monthly oral history of it there, there's a, a quote from Danny Glover who plays the part beautifully Yeah, and he's just like I wasn't sure about doing it because I wasn't sure how much there was there and honestly and so he came up with some more backstory for Dietz in order to bring to bring to his performance but look the miniseries is great but he's right There isn't room for that internal life and there isn't room for the depth, uh, although he certainly brought depth to it. And and one of the things that this makes me think of, and maybe this is a way to transition, it's so fascinating to me that this was designed as a star vehicle. This was Larry McMurtry and Peter Bogdanovich sitting on a balcony of a hotel in Miami watching Sybil Shepard swim laps saying, let's do a Western. Let's mm-hmm. get let's get the Duke back on horseback again, and we'll get we'll get Jimmy Stewart saying Augustus in his funny voice, and and that's what it'll be. It was a star vehicle, and then when no one wanted to make it, he bought the rights back and turned what had to have been a what a hundred and twenty page script into a nine hundred page novel yeah. that is so rich in detail you'd have to read it multiple times to get all of it, and then it becomes a miniseries, which was as expansive as something could be at the time. It was six hours on TV. That's pretty good. And looked good as for the good 80s. as you could probably make a miniseries look. Yeah. And yet ultimately, it is a star vehicle in the end, you know, through the weight of Duvall's performance and Tommy Lee Jones's performance, but also because the aperture for a story like this in 1989 was to center it in the two old cowboys. Mm-hmm. 
and not necessarily find a way in through uh, the the whore on the side of town or the black man who's a member of the group but not really a member of the group. It is what it is, but it, it to my mind anyway, watching it, I admire it and I'm fond of it the way I think the sentimental fan of Lonesome Dove is, but I just feel I feel what's missing so much. Yeah, well, it's interesting too because the order with which in which you come to those things, I think, has a big impact on the other. So True. I think that I have a really hard time seeing Gus and Woodrow as anybody else, but Robert Duvall and Tommy <laughs> Lee Jones. And crucially, I think, especially for these opening few hundred pages, the book doesn't really have an antagonist in the early stages other than Jake. You know, Jake is the thorn in everybody's paw, but is not quite a villain yet. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, is not quite a villain. And I think the interesting thing about this book is, and and the story is that even the most monstrous villains that emerge aren't really villains. You know, or they are villains, but they aren't really, they aren't really the centerpiece of the story the way I think I've trained myself to read stories in terms of Mm -hmm. who is the protagonist and who is the antagonist. In some ways, I don't even know how much we really know about Gus and Woodrow psychologically at the end of this book that we didn't know in the beginning. I mean, some of them, are, it's, they've been changed by their journey for sure, but a lot of what's changed them is literally physically what they've gone through throughout the journey. I think that's right. And I think that when I was reading the book, expecting something more traditional than what it is, almost having the legend in my mind more than the, than the reality of it. And even my mass market paperback, has that thing that books used to do where on the inside and back cover, it's like, you will meet. And it says like, oh, the the horror with the heart of gold and the, the the beloved gang and says, and the fearsome villain, Blue Duck and blah, blah, blah. And then I'm reading the book and I'm like, man, Larry doesn't give a fuck about rules. Like yeah. he doesn't even introduce the antagonist into page whatever. And when he does, it's, and it was only later that I realized that of course he knows rules. He was intentionally subverting them. The villain isn't what we, isn't who we think it is. The villain such as it is, is, entropy and time and nature and all of that, right? It doesn't behave the way you expect it to. It fights it at every turn, even though we, even now, when we're talking about it, sometimes still try to put certain narrative clothing back on it. I will say, though, that one thing I thought that the miniseries does really well, and they talk about it in that Texas Monthly Oral History, is the casting of Robert Urich, which I know Mm. that we've texted back and forth and you've been like, man, I don't know. Like, it just feels like he was a little out of his league here. But I thought it was so interesting reading them talk about, reading this various people involved with the project talk about, that was an actual tension on set. Mm -hmm. That Robert Urich actually was like, I'm a TV guy, and this is Tommy Lee Jones and Robert Duvall that I'm acting with. And he had a little bit of a chip on his shoulder about it. And Jake Spoon has a chip on his shoulder about things not going his way the way he always wants them to go. And he is this immature brat of a character who's actually not good at anything but women and gambling, uh, but has kind of ridden on the reputation of the Rangers and Gus and, and Woodrow f- throughout most of his life. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, you read these, these, these retrospectives and Duvall knew. Duvall was just like, and by the way, they went to Duvall first to play Call. Yeah. And uh, I think James Garner was, was in the mix to potentially play um, Gus. And, uh, Duval is basically like, you know, he knows how to ride. He knows how to ride horses. He knows how to do basically everything. And he had just won an Oscar the year before for Tender Mercies. And he was like, we are doing the godfather of Westerns. Like we mm-hmm. are through through sheer force of will, we are going to make a masterpiece here and somehow achieve that, even though there were all these other concerns at place. Like you, you learn behind the scenes that 
when they wanted to cast Angelica Houston as Clara, its character doesn't show up till much later in the book, but it casts a very, very long and impressive shadow. And it's an amazing section of the book that's, you know, we'll get to. Um, the people involved were like, yeah, we need some TV people on this. This is a TV show. Let's get Bob Eric and Ricky Schroeder. Yeah. And that's why they're there. And are they suitable? Sure. But it, it's part of the limitations they were up against. I mean, whole characters are removed, some, you know, in ways that make sense. Some, like Will Barger, that are still going to still, still annoy me. But I guess I'm curious what other people feel about it, because clearly there's many, many more people whose introduction to this was the miniseries and just feel enormous fondness for it yeah. um, than have ever read the book. But for me, reading, watching the show as a companion piece, it, it's amazing to watch Duvall and Jones cook and just bring these people fully flesh and blood to life. And then on the margins, it's like, well, it's fun to see. It's fun to see. But mm -hmm. it, it, it lacks, for me, the depth and the, just the, the depth and breadth because it's just, he just writes so much. <laughs> he writes so much about everything. Well, yeah, and I think that one of the challenges for the show, at least in terms of looking back at it, is even though you can, even though a lot of the performances have not aged a second, especially that that of the leads, some of like the more set PC parts, especially the part that I think we'll end on here, mm -hmm. you know, you you probably would have wanted a, another run at that in 2020, maybe, uh, yeah. which is these, uh, for lack of a better term, the snake attack that ends the first episode of the miniseries and happens about 280 pages into the edition that I have. This is also the moment where I think most people are like, oh shit. Yep. This is a, a, a very engaging, lovely, funny, interesting story for the first couple hundred pages. You're introduced to all these different people. I think I kept getting distracted by July a little bit and just kind of be like, what is up with this guy? Like, why is he getting so much screen time and, here in the book? Yeah. And then we get to, they've been on the, you know, out there on the prairie for a little while. And there have been cool set pieces. I think that the, um, stealing the horses or stealing the horses back from uh, Hacienda Flores in Mexico is, is an amazing sequence. But really, they're just kind of like moving along and, and complaining about horse flies and dust for a lot of the book until kind of in the middle of a paragraph, he says, that's when Newt turned around and like heard a scream that was the worst sound he had ever heard. And this is absolutely, it's anecdotal. It happened to me like, this is the moment when you say, oh, shit, and you realize the book you're reading isn't necessarily the book you thought you were reading. And I know you plan to just finish this chapter and go to sleep, but you're not going to because you have to keep going to calm your heart rate and wonder if anything's ever going to be OK again. Yeah. And this is also a lot of insight into the way McMurtry works, which is there are few writers alive or who have ever lived, I think, who love their characters as deeply and totally as he does. I mean, he just almost like a with a painterly casual stroke introduces someone and you know everything about them and you love them and they feel you feel like they're flesh and blood and part of your life and you know they ride down to mexico and suddenly they meet these singing irish brothers and you're like okay sure and you learn by the way from the texas monthly that that's because bogdanovich wanted to cast some irish singers in the movie they were going to make and so these characters are artifacts of that just random desire that he had and then you're with Nude and he's becoming friends with Sean O'Brien and he's brave and he's learned how to ride a horse and you're like, everything is going to work out. And all of us, and we talk about this and we talk about TV too, just have a natural desire for things to work out. That's how we are as people. And sometimes we bring that to filmed entertainment or books and then that's where that dissonance is where the, the good juicy stuff happens. All of a sudden, Sean O'Brien, <laughs> upon whom much story time has been 
allotted and bestowed, and he's come alive to us, is bitten to death by two dozen poisonous snakes and dies gasping for air next to a river. Yeah. And you're like, what the... And that's when you realize the book you were reading isn't the book you thought you were. And and there were moments before, even as you were talking about the the horse raid on Pedro Flores' compound. In retrospect, I now understand how important that is because calls like he's our enemy, he's our mirror on the other side of the border. He, yeah. We've given and gotten as good as it gets. And Call loves that. He respects being well-matched. You're like, oh, and is he going to chase them? Like, what's going to happen? And then they get away. And I'm like, oh, this is a fantasy. Like, everything's going to work out for these guys. And then it's casually, oh, old Pedro died. Like, oh, the old guys are dying. That's what the book is about, by the mm-hmm. way. But instead, we have the snake attack. And it, it is so disturbing and haunting. And that is the moment when, dare I say it, Larry's literary fangs latch into you and don't let go. You watch it on TV. These people who made the, the miniseries version, um, Bill Whitliffe, an Austin writer, uh, an artist who did the screenplay, and, and Simon Windsor, uh, the Australian who directed it. I mean, they... They're no dummies. They knew the book. They knew that this was the moment to end the first episode. Yeah. But woof. I wish we could just gift through time some special yeah, release effects. Release the Snyder cut. Like, let's just get like some some special effects going and get like uh, like you don't actually see a snake attack. It's just like a shot of a snake, the guy's dangling leg as he enters the river, and a scream. So no, I mean obviously. No, no, no. It freezes, Chris. It freeze frames on a snake's split oh, head that's right. near my man's Sean Astin looking face. Yeah, that's You know right. what I mean? And then it freeze frames. Like it's like it's an episode of, of Trapper John MD or something. And it was the late 80s, man. That's the thing. It is, it's dated. It's yeah. dated. But but it, that is the moment when you realize, and, and, and by the way, they're still in Texas. Like they haven't gone very far. Yeah. And all of these people along the, it, it, he takes a, a lot of time making it clear that everyone is shook by this. And that sort of brings me to the, to one of the last points I wanted to make for this first section, which is the, the Hat Creek outfit, but then also the whole team that is assembled is split, right? Between old hands like Gus and Call and Dietz and P.I. and new recruits, mm-hmm. uh, whether Newt, who is a kid, um, but people who are essentially his peers, whether they're the, the Irish guys or... Dish and Soupy and Jasper, who all who fancy boys. themselves yeah. top hands or whatever. And it's split between, and almost to a dangerous degree, between people who don't know anything and people who really should know better. Mm-hmm. And it romanticizes neither. Like Newt's innocence is sweet and compelling in like almost any like building's Roman story. You're like, oh, he's going to learn about the world and maybe catch a few bruises and nicks along the way. And only later are you like, why are the people who should be just giving him good advice leading him into this? Yeah, because that was the way of that was the way life worked back then. And that's the thing is like, there's also this amazing moment where I think it, there's a lot of like trepidation about crossing rivers, and a bunch of these younger <laughs> yeah. guys are just like, "Shit, I do not want to do this." And it's like, yeah, because this is like the fifth river you've ever seen, and you've never gone across any of them. <laughs> also, horses can swim. Like yeah. I, th- this is just me learning stuff. You know what I mean? Like. I, I didn't know. I certainly didn't know pigs could swim. Um, <laughs> but look, I mean, it, it's, it, it doesn't seem real easy. Like, yeah. is there anything? What's weird is, and, and we should end here, but there's so much escapism in our pleasure that we take from this book and this property. And I would give anything. I mean, I love talking to you, buddy, but I would give anything to be reading this book again right now. But that's different than saying, I want to be these people. There's never, I would never really want to play Lonesome Dove. 
And in that sense, I think it's like actually a book that I only really felt like I could read now. But you know, you never, yeah. re- you know, the you wouldn't imagine yourself in this world because you wouldn't last a day. You wouldn't last a day. You know, like it's 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 essentially like it's a miracle they make it five miles outside of town. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Bolivar's cooking sounds interesting. I like the whiskey. <laughs> yeah, whiskey sounds good. Um, that's about it, really, yeah. right? Yeah, and for what? For to get these cattle from one part of the country to the other, and it's a testament to the book that you're just like I'm following along, you know, breathlessly. So we'll and we wrap hope it up. You there. guys are as well. Yeah, we'll wrap it up there. Um, we'll. I think we're going to get more into specific characters in the next couple. We just wanted to set this up as much as possible. Uh, if you guys have questions for us, or if there's conversation topics that you'd want us to hit, I think the Facebook group or hitting us up on Twitter would be the best place to do it. We're interested to see what other people are interested in here and um yeah like thanks for going on this dog days of summer journey with us i got my bedroll and also a lot of luggage 